So, turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. We get to leave earth and go to heaven. Uh, in chapters four and five, we're in heaven. I really think, and I'm beginning to read more and more scholars um, who, who agree with me, and that's not important to you, but I like it when scholars agree with me. Uh, I'm beginning to read more and more scholars who are writing and saying that chapters four and five are perhaps the defining chapters in the book of Revelation, the definitive chapters in the book of Revelation, um, really the crux of the book of Revelation. We've noticed for um, a couple millennia that everything after chapter 4 and 5 flows from chapters 4 and 5. We know that. That should tell you this is pretty much the crux of the book of Revelation. Uh, from chapter 6 till the final scenes of the book of Revelation, everything is integrally connected to chapters 4 and 5. So you need to uh, hang out around chapters 4 and 5 for a while. They are very important. Uh, in chapters 4 and 5, you are in heaven. Uh, in chapters 2 and 3, you were on the earth with the seven churches that Jesus was addressing. So you, you transition now from earth to heaven. In chapters 4 and 5, you're in heaven. Uh, chapter 4 is centered on God and the throne in heaven. And chapter 5 is centered on that same throne in heaven, but it's centered on Jesus Christ. And then all of the rest of the book flows from what you'll see happen, particularly in chapter 5, uh, what you'll see happen in the throne room. Another reason why more and more people are noticing that chapters 4 and 5 are so critical to the study of the book of Revelation is, um, and I said this in the very beginning, and I've repeated it a few times, the big question that the book of Revelation is trying to answer, trying to help Christian folk answer, is who is on the throne? Well, certainly it's not me. Certainly it's not an earthly ruler. And the throne scene that you will see in chapter 4, in a lot of ways when the first century Christians read this, would be reminded of the throne scene that would be happening in Rome with, uh, with the emperor. They would uh, draw the connection between the throne in Rome where the Caesar was ruling the empire. There'd be a lot of similarities as far as attendance around the throne, people doing the bidding of the person on the throne, uh, people offering worship to the person on the, on the throne, people prostrating themselves to the person on the throne. You can see all of that happening in Rome. So John and, and the Spirit through John wants to make sure that the Christian community realizes that throne in Rome is not the real throne. That's not really the throne that is... Uh, ruling or overruling the world. Uh, the throne in heaven is the real throne. And remember chapters 2 and 3, remember what all we saw happening in chapters 2 and 3, all the different situations and circumstances of those earthly churches uh, there in Asia Minor in present-day Turkey. Um, uh, they needed to realize who is on the throne. If we, if we understand who's on the throne, 
that would help us not to accommodate as much. That would help us not to assimilate as much. And it would help us suffer earthly persecution to know that whatever the earthly thrones do to us, what really matters is our relationship with the heavenly throne. And that's why I think chapters 4 and 5 should give great, great, great comfort to the, um, to the Christian community. And obviously it did in the first century, and it has throughout the history of the Christian movement. Today, uh, the people that, who seem to get the most comfort from the book of Revelation are those Christians in other parts of the world who are suffering incredibly because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of the fact that in the 20th century, the century just left, more Christians died for their faith in Jesus Christ than any other century of Christian history. Because, of course, our numbers have increased over the last 20 centuries. So the numbers of martyrs has increased over the last 20 centuries. Sometimes, you know, if I have a toothache, I think the whole world's hurting. Sometimes I think, you know, if, it's, if I have a life of comfort, this is the way it is around the world. And it's definitely not. Uh, Christians around the world are paying desperate prices uh, to, to stay true to Christ. So the book of Revelation helps Christians do that. Helps them understand who's on the throne. Helps them understand to whom we offer our worship. The, the, the person or the thing that we worship will determine how we become. We become that. We become like that which we love or which we worship. Whether it's self-worship or worship some institution or worship some activity or worship some material uh, gift, whatever, whatever we worship determines how we become. What or who we love determines how we become. So this is a critical question. Who is on the throne and are you worshiping the right throne? Now, if you worship Caesar, you're going to probably become a lot like Caesar. But the book of Revelation is written to say, make sure you realize who is on the throne so that you worship God and God alone. Um, and we, 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 we mess that up a lot also in the Christian community. Uh, you will see that the, the throne is at the center of heaven. You will see the throne is at the center of creation. God's throne is at the center of creation. That's where we worship. Uh, and we need to make sure we understand what worship is. And we're going to even see some of that here in chapters 4 and 5. We need to understand what worship is. Uh, just let me say an aside about Protestant worship in a lot of churches in the contemporary era. When we worship, we will be edified. We will be comforted. Um, we will learn some wonderful things. And we will find strength for the journey. That happens when we worship because we are created to worship God. So, you know, we, we do get good stuff out of our worship. We do. But because of that, we keep forgetting that worship's not about us. If you walk out, I, I really won't because I'm a nice guy. What I want to do, though, if you walk out in one of my services on Sunday morning and you say, I don't like that hymn, 
I may say that's fine. We weren't singing to you. (laughs) But Americans, everything is about me. So worship becomes focused on us, focused on our newest denominational program, our newest church program, what we want to do as a community. It gets focused on our comfort, gets focused on what we want, gets focused on what we need. And that's fine, nothing wrong with that. That's just not the full expression of worship. Our deepest needs are met when we worship God. Because we're created to worship God. Our deepest needs are met when we worship God. Now, if we forget that and get confused and put what we want, who we are, our organization, our agendas, our goals, my self-satisfaction at the center of our worship, we will miss God and miss what we need. You checking with me here? Um, That's why I grew up in a culture. We did not even call Sunday morning service worship. We called it preaching because it's all about me and what I heard and how I was edified and how I was built up, how I was comforted, how I was sustained. And again, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. By the way, that may be a revival service you're looking for instead of worship because it's all about me. Uh, but worship has to be centered on God. That's the bare minimum. Now, it's you know, for a lot of people, they think it's about the style of music. They think it about, it's about how you're seated or how you're dressed or the order of what happens. All of that stuff is secondary. Because you can, you can use any style of worship, you can use any style of music, and it may or may not be focused on God. The bare minimum as to what worship is has got to be focused on God. Um, you'll see... The throne here. You'll see the throne is in the center, and you'll see the worship is around the throne. Um, we, we have to keep recalling ourselves to this. I, I plan worship every week, and I have to remind myself on a weekly basis what worship primarily is about. It's not about blessing me. Worship is about blessing God. In some traditions, not ours, but in some traditions, the first the first hymn in the hymnal may be Holy, 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 which comes from Revelation 4. Or it may be, um, in some tradition, it's, it's a hymn entitled, from Montgomery, entitled, Stand Up and Bless the Lord. And that's a good reminder because we think it's about us being blessed. That's why, again, if I'm in a bad mood and you tell me you didn't like that hymn, I may tell you we weren't singing it to you. <laughs> Because we we tend to think, you know, God is the audience for worship. We think we're the audience, don't we? We think there's some performers up here. You know, please don't call the chancel a stage. That will make my brain explode. (laughs) I was actually somewhere recently, and they were referring to the chancel area of a church as the stage. It's not a stage. um, Because... You know, I'm not the performer, the choir's not the performer, and you the audience. God is always the audience for worship. If God is not the audience for worship, it's not worship. It may be a testimony service, it may be a revival service, it may be a teaching session. It can be a lot of wonderful things, but worship at its core has to be focused on God. And that's why 
one of the reasons why worship is so important because hopefully every time we come to worship, we get refocused on God because human nature being what it is, we focus on ourselves. And it's insidious and it's seductive, the ways we focus on ourselves. I remember in uh, the church in which I did, I'm not going to say what I did in that church, but you can figure out what church it was. In one of my previous churches, and it wasn't the last one, in one of my previous churches, uh, right after I went there, they gave out trophies to the um, softball team mates in worship. I hope you see a problem with that. That's about as obvious as you can get that this is not focused on God when I'm giving out trophies to other human beings. Um, Anyway, that's probably enough said about what worship is. Chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation will show us the throne, remind us who really is on the throne, will remind us what worship is about, will remind us what worship looks like. So that's probably enough of an intro. Okay, chapter 4. And this divides up neatly. Chapter 4, we're in heaven, it's focused on God. And this tells you a lot about our Trinitarian theology. Chapter 5 is in heaven, there's still the throne, but it's focused on Jesus. So um, the two chapters divide up pretty well. And again, when, when we look at this, again, the book of Revelation, and I know we all do this, and I'm probably getting ready to do this, the book of Revelation is not meant primarily to be dissected or analyzed, though we tend to do that in our culture, is to be experienced, is to be felt, is to be seen. So try to visualize, it's almost impossible, but try to visualize what, what is going to be presented to you here in this vision and try to feel what's being presented in this vision. Again, we like to dissect and analyze. We're a post-enlightenment culture. And we, that's okay, that's a good skill. But um, particularly the book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature, visionary literature, you need to try to see what the seer, John, is seeing and try to feel what John, the seer, is feeling, um, particularly as you go into heaven. Because if you try to analyze some of the book of Revelation, particularly this section, you know, your brain may explode. You try to analyze the book of Revelation. It's not meant to be analyzed. It's meant to be felt, experienced. It's, mil- it's meant to motivate us to a certain lifestyle. Um, particularly when you kind of transition to heaven, which we're getting ready to do. Because you know, human words are totally incapable, inadequate to explain heaven. So um, just try to feel this. So chapter 4, verse 1 and following. After this, I, John, looked, looked, this is a vision, I, John, looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. He's being invited in. Just let that sink in for a moment. He's being invited into the, the throne room. After the first, and the first verse, which, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. By the way, that was Jesus in chapter 1. It says, Jesus speaking again. As a matter of fact, if you have a red letter Bible, this next Senate should be in red letters. So he says, and the first verse, which in the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like like a trumpet, and this, you've already heard this before in chapter one, said, and here comes the red letters, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now after this is not 
after October of 2019. After this is after what you just saw in chapters 2 and 3. After this is after the first century. So we've been in the after this mode ever since the first century. So come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Verse 2, and at once I was in the Spirit. Four times in the book of Revelation, John tells you he's in the Spirit. So we know that he's sort of in a trance. He's in an ecstasy. He's seeing a vision. He's in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, the word throne occurs like 40 times in the book of Revelation. Again, that should give us the message. This book is about the throne and who is really on the throne. It's not the emperor in Caesar. It's not the emperor in Rome. It's not the person in the White House. It's not the person at the Kremlin that's on the throne. So you get let in, and you see this throne in heaven and one seated on the throne. You're going to feel the Jewishness here as you see God, because as soon as I say you're going to see God on the throne in chapter 4, I have to say you really are not going to see God on the throne in chapter 4. Because in good Jewish fashion, the last, last thing a Jewish monotheist is going to do is paint a picture of God for you. That, that violates one of the major Ten Commandments. You're not going to have a picture of God painted, a graven image, a picture of God painted. So you're sort of seeing a picture of God. Uh, the, the name of God, what well, you may say Jehovah or Yahweh, is not even being used here because Jews try to avoid that. So God is being referred to in ways such as the one who is seated upon the throne. You know, that's God. Obviously, that's God. So you see the throne with the one seated on the throne. Verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. You have a lot of gems, a lot of stones being presented in the book of Revelation. And I know some commentators will go to great lengths to try to explain to you what they think, each stone represents. Uh, as I said, be a little hesitant to dissect the book of Revelation or analyze the book of Revelation. Um, because usually when they, when they head down that path, you can about make the stones represent whatever you want the stones to represent. Um, some of these stones do reference what the high priest wore on, on their clothing. Some of these stones probably do have colors that may be significant. Um, but I think if you were to ask John, what do, what do these stones mean? What does the emerald mean? What does the rainbow mean? What does the glassy sea mean? All of this is going to be in the picture just to help you receive the radiance, the splendor, the brilliance of God. That's what John wants you to get from this, the radiance, the splendor, and the brilliance of God. Because if you walk away from this text and you've not been overwhelmed with the radiance and the splendor and the brilliance of God, you, you've not experienced or encountered this text. Uh, even this rainbow here, you know, as soon as we say rainbow in the Jewish tradition, where does our mind go? We had Noah in the ark. Uh, where the rainbow is a sign of God's mercy that's given to the people after uh, the flood. And that may be exactly where we're meant to go here. Um, and maybe before you see all of the um, turmoil 
of chapter 6 through chapter 19, big chunk of the book, maybe before you see all that turmoil, you are meant to see that rainbow, that sign, that symbol of God's covenant of mercy with the human people. Maybe before you see all the turmoil that begins in chapter 6, you're supposed to put all of that turmoil in light of this rainbow, in light of the mercy, in light of the covenant love of God that uh, God is bestowing on the human family. Uh, That's probably a good guess because that fits the Jewish culture, the rainbow. Now, the problem is rainbows usually have about seven colors. This one only has one. You know, it says, uh, you know, a rainbow that had the appearance. Again, notice John's not saying it really is. It has the appearance of an emerald. So um, we don't really know even. A lot of times even some of these names for gems and stones have changed over the years. That's why, for instance, with uh, Jasper that I just read about, we're not even really sure exactly what that is. Later in the book of Revelation, Jasper is referred to as clear as crystal. So that may be what the stone looked like to the first first century people. Um, We're not really sure what an emerald is, but we're we're being told that this rainbow is one color. Uh, You can actually translate the word rainbow there. Not necessarily rainbow, but as halo. The word that tends to get translated rainbow here is not the same Greek word that's used to translate the Hebrew of the Septuagint from Genesis for rainbow. So this may be just a halo, and that fits perfectly. you got this halo surrounding the throne. Again, all of these images here are to give us a sense of God's splendor, God's brilliance, God's radiance. And that's why you're to see that more than the person seated on the throne. We know that there's the person seated on the throne. There's not going to be any description of the person seated on the throne. I mean, I wish there was a description, not really, but maybe. I wish there was a description. I wish it said he, he was Caucasian, white, bald-headed, and short and fat. <laughs> but you're not going to be given that. You're not going to be given that in Jewish tradition. Because that's, that's, that's a graven image. You're not going to paint a picture of, of, of the God seated on the throne. So we don't know if he looks like Americans or Africans or Asians. Um, all thing you're meant to see here is the brilliance. The brilliance of the one seated on the throne. So there's this halo. Look at verse 4. There are other people in this throne room scene. Just like if you were to go to Rome or any other throne room throne room on the earth, there's going to be other people in the room um, serving the one on the throne. Um, same is true of this heavenly picture. There's other people in the throne room. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Well, being the inquisitive types that we are, we say, who are these people? These 24 elders seated on thrones, clothed in white, with golden crowns on their heads. Well, I'm sure it doesn't surprise you. You can read 2,000 years worth of commentaries on the book of Revelation, get lots of options as to who these 24 are, what they represent. Um, they may be an order of angels. Uh, if you go back to First Chronicles chapter 24 in the Hebrew Bible, you will see that there were 24 orders of priests who served in the temple. Maybe it goes back to that. Um, 
probably the most common um, thought concerning these 24 elders, and this does fit, is you know the number 24 really is 12 plus 12. And by the way, when you get to chapter 21, you almost get this explained. This is why we kind of land here most of the time. Uh, 24 is 12 plus 12. So these 24 elders might symbolize, as they do in chapter 21, they may symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. So as you put them together, the 24, you have the whole people of God. Hebrew, Testament, New Testament. So these 24 elders, because we are promised throughout the book of Revelation and elsewhere in the New Testament, those who belong to Christ one day will reign with Christ. So you see these little thrones surrounding the big throne, and these 24 elders on the throne, they're dressed in white, which is a symbol of victory and purity. They're wearing crowns, and, and, and I want you to notice this. They're wearing crowns because we are promised over and over again uh, that we will rule and reign with Christ when the kingdom comes. Now, before we get out of chapter 4, you will see what we do with these crowns which you probably already know because you sung the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. You probably know what we do with these crowns before we get out of uh, chapter uh, 4. I mean, most of us probably put the crown on and say, look what's on my head. Isn't this great? But you can see uh, that's not what we ultimately do with the thrones or the crowns on our head as we're seated on the throne, ruling or reigning with Christ. So these 24 could be the... Um, uh, a representation of the people of God in heaven, both uh, Old Testament and New Testament people of God in heaven. Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And you good Jews in the room at that point would think Mount Sinai and God calling Moses up to Mount Sinai and Moses experiencing God on Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai uh, was engulfed in clouds and thunder and lightning. And if you don't know that from the book of Exodus, you know that from Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. <laughs> so th this image, we know where this image comes from. And again, these lightnings and rumblings and thunders, you know, are a symbol that God is, God is present. God is in the house. Again, no description of God, but all this stuff surrounding God. Um, look at verse, um, well, notice, same verse. So after you hear about the, the lightning and the rumblings, the pills of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold spirit of God. Now, again, some there are a few commentators out there who will say these seven spirits are the seven archangels, which we don't really get in the New Testament, but which we do get in the book of Tobit which was a early um, Christian Jewish writing, Jewish writing the Christians appropriated. So there, were, there are seven archangels according to um, uh, Judaism. Um, most people assume, because we've sort of been told this already in chapter 1, these seven spirits of God, that's the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit. So we see the church in heaven, the people of God in heaven. We see the Holy Spirit in heaven. None of this should surprise us. Verse 6, And before the throne... There was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, again, you know, we, we've, we've, wrote, we've written a lot about this sea of glass over the centuries. Uh, because as soon as we think from a biblical mindset about the sea of glass, or the sea, we remind ourselves, and this, we're going to see this again in chapter 22, um, we remind ourselves that to the Jewish people, 
They hated the sea. The sea was a symbol of evil. The sea was a symbol of uh, danger. The Jewish people were not a seagoing people. One of the reasons they didn't like the Phoenicians, there were many reasons they didn't like the Phoenicians. Uh, the Baal worship of the Phoenicians is one of the reasons. But they didn't like the Phoenicians, but the, they, one of the reasons was the Phoenicians there on the coast were a seagoing people. The Jewish people were not a seagoing people. You had to be made to be a seagoing person if you were Jewish. Be made like Jonah. Remember that story? That's kind of their experience of going to sea. Think about the book of Jonah. Uh, so the sea is a sign and a symbol of evil in the Jewish world, which is why at the beginning, I'll go ahead and tell you, at the beginning of chapter 22, when the kingdom comes, there's that really interesting phrase which you hear read at funerals, the sea was no more. And most of you go, ah, that disappoints me. I want heaven to be like Holden Beach. Um, and you get to Revelation 22 and it says the sea was no more. Um, again, not anti-sea, not anti-creation. It's just what the sea symbolized for the Jewish people. It symbolizes chaos and fear and danger and all of the above. So because we know that about the Jewish mindset and, and, and the sea, we look at this sea of glass like crystal before the throne and we wonder what is this about? Um, I, I mean, there are commentators who say this may say that there's some sort of conquered evil in heaven. Uh, that just doesn't feel really good to me. Um, it may be part of the basin that you see in the temple and the tabernacle, as the Jewish people would have known, that basin that reflected, that held water. Uh, the image I have here, because of what I've said already about the glory and the radiance and the splendor of God, what I think about... Maybe some of you can tell me what the name of this thing is, because I don't know what the name of this is. But sometimes I'm in fancy places eating fancy meals, and there may be a flower arrangement in the center of the table, and sometimes there's like a glass under it, like a reflective thing that's there just to kind of add some beauty, to reflect the beauty, to reflect the brilliance, to reflect the radiance. Is there a name for that thing under the, in the center of the table? Mirror. A mirror. That's why I call it a mirror. Yeah, I call it a mirror. I don't know if it's a fancy term for what you put there in the center of the table, you know, to reflect your flowers. But um, this glassy sea before God, because again, look at it. You know, before the throne, there was as it were. And notice language like as it were. Not there is definitely a literal glassy sea. There was something like, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. I think it's just part of the reflecting of the brilliance of God. I mean, the language here is going to great length to show you the brilliance and the glory and the majesty and the radiance of God and, and, and try to reflect it as brightly as they can. Sometimes the mirrors are good because they do reflect light to reflect the light. Um, so that, that feels pretty good to me. Go to the next paragraph. You're still in the same verse. Here comes some more um, persons in quotation marks, persons in the throne room. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Let me just read the image. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, are full of eyes all and around and within. And the day and the night, they never cease to sing or to say... That's, a, that's, a, that's an amazing image. Now, that image is probably pretty confusing to you. 
and startling and astonishing to you, and it should be, because you probably cannot tell me the last time you read Ezekiel chapter 1 or Ezekiel chapter 10, or Ezekiel in general. Um, if you read Ezekiel, particularly chapters 1, chapter 10, maybe that's your homework, you see pretty much these same creatures. These same creatures gathered around the throne. In Ezekiel, it's a chariot slash throne in Ezekiel. You see these same creatures there. About the, the most major difference is that um, here it seems like there's four creatures. There's still four creatures in Ezekiel. There's four creatures. Uh, each creature has a different face. You know, human, ox, eagle, and lion. Now, in Ezekiel, each creature has all four faces. But that's pretty close. That's pretty close. Uh, so we look at this and say, who are these people before the throne? What are these people? What do they symbolize? Why are we being told about them? Um, and there's actually quite a bit of consensus on this one because of Ezekiel, uh, because we know what they were in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, we are told they're seraphim. They're an order of angels who serve God at the throne, who serve God in heaven. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew Bible talks about primarily two orders of angels. Seraphim, or seraphs, are all over the place. Um, actually, let me back up. I'm wrong. Seraphs, cherubim are all over the place. These may be the same thing, by the way. Cherubim are all over the place, or cherubs are all over the place. Uh, they're called seraphs, or seraphim, Put the I-M on the end in Hebrew. I-M makes it plural. So the seraph or seraphim, cherubs or cherubim, uh, are all over the Hebrew Bible. Uh, cherub is usually the term, beginning in the book of Genesis and going forward. Uh, in, um, in, in the great vision in Isaiah chapter 6 of the throne room, some more homework, chapter 6 of Isaiah, um, they're referred to as seraphim there. But, but these creatures are referred to as seraphim or cherubim. Uh, probably in the Hebrew Bible, seraphim and cherubim are pretty much the same kind of thing. Angels, an order of angels that serve God in heaven. Uh, as Judaism progresses, by the time you get to Tobit and the seven archangels, uh, the seraphim and seraphim have um, become two separate orders of angels. But one way or another, this is an order of angel that's in heaven, that's serving God day and night. And you're going to be told, well, again, if, if you keep reading, they're, they're serving God day and night, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy. Well, again, that comes straight from Isaiah chapter 6. That's the song that the, that's the song that seraphim are singing in Isaiah chapter 6. So these are, are, are pretty much an angelic order serving God around the throne. Um, what may be a little significant to this is we've still wondered why why lion, human being, ox, and eagle? There is a tradition that, that becomes the four Gospels. Now, that's a late tradition. I'll tell you why it becomes. It's a little weird, but it's okay. It's, 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 I say late second century. That's pretty old for us, but second century. Um, you know, there was a rabbi who actually, after we didn't say they were the four Gospels, there was a rabbi in the fourth century who said that each of these animals were the mightiest of their genre. You know, the lion is the mightiest of that kind of animal. The ox is the mightiest of that kind of animal. 
Uh, humans, we're the mightiest of our kind of animal. Eagles, the mightiest, mightiest of that kind of animal. So maybe these are the different, the mightiest in each category. Um, some people have looked at this and said, you know, maybe uh, the eagle or the lion is the noblest, the eagle's the swiftest, the ox is the strongest, and the human is the wisest. The older I get, I'm beginning to wonder about that one. Um, but that's been written about a lot. Uh, and all of that kind of writing ends up in the same place, saying that these four different kinds of animals depict all of the created order. So, and that makes sense. I mean, you've already seen all the people of God worshiping in heaven. So now what do you see in worshiping heaven? All of creation worshiping heaven. All of creation worshiping heaven. Yeah, Irenaeus, who I really like Irenaeus. He had some bizarre moments. Irenaeus in the second century is the one who gave us the concept. And it's all over artwork. All over, you can Google and see artwork upon artwork upon artwork, how each of these four creatures symbolizes one of the Gospels. It's just all over Christian art since the second century. They say that, um, um, uh, let's start with, um, well, they say man. Man becomes the symbol for the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew, if you remember, starts that long genealogy. They say the line is becomes, it's all over the place, becomes a symbol for Luke. Um, no, scratch that. The line's a symbol for Mark because Mark begins uh, with, you know, the ministry of Jesus. In the first verse, you're introduced to the Son of Man, and the Son of Man was the line of the tribe of Judah. So there's the man and the line. They say that the ox represents Luke's gospel because much of Luke's gospel, and then the book of Acts that Luke wrote, uh, takes place in the temple. And oxes were temple sacrifices. And then the eagle, which is what you're left with, uh, becomes the symbol. You see these on pulpits sometimes. The eagle became the symbol of John's gospel because it soared to heights that the other gospels didn't soar to, if you think about the gospel of John. Um, We've made lots and lots of artwork about this. And this is used all the time in Christian artwork to symbolize the Gospels. Um, yeah, I don't know that John would recognize that. Uh, that. That seems a little forced to me. And everybody that references that say it's a little forced. You know, maybe this does stand for all of creation, the different kinds of animals in creation. Um, the only problem with that is you got to do something with the fish. There's no fish being represented uh, here in heaven. But maybe it represents all of creation. Uh, you may be on safest ground just simply saying, this is the angelic order. These are the cherubim, cherubim that Ezekiel wrote about that are serving God because they're doing exactly what the cherubim were doing or seraphim were doing in Isaiah chapter 6. What are they doing night and day? They never cease to say or sing. And there's your first song that you get in the book of Revelation. They never cease to say or sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So here these creatures are, this is their song. You're getting ready, then you, in a minute you're going to see the elders' song, but here's the creatures' song. Um, we know that song because we were taught this song in Isaiah 6. We call it the Trisagion, the, the, the thrice holy, 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 holy. Um, we know all about that song. We love to sing that song. Um, uh, I appreciate Reginald Heber giving us a song version of this that we can sing in churches. 
what's significant about this is the phrase holy, holy, holy. In, in the Hebrew language, if you say something once, like if I say you're holy, that's an adjective that describes you. If I say you're holy, holy, that is a superlative. That means you're very holy. If I say it three times, you're holy, holy, holy. That means you're supreme. Uh, sometimes Americans think that the supreme attribute of God is love. And, you know, that is an attribute of God. At one point we're told God is love in First John. Uh, but the Bible is very clear, particularly in the Hebrew Bible, and then Jesus was a Hebrew Jew, that, uh, that if you want to say what is the supreme characteristic of God, it's his holiness. He is different. He's transcendent. He is set apart. He is different from us. He is other. He's holy. That's why, yeah, God loves, but make sure you keep God's love a holy love. God's mercy is a holy mercy. God's grace is a holy grace. You know, we're never told that God is love, love, love. We're never told he's grace, grace, grace. We are told he's holy, holy, holy. And that's just a Hebraic way of of getting beyond the superlative to the supreme. So I think sometimes we in the West forget that God's core characteristic is holiness. When you refer to God as the man upstairs, you have forgotten that God's core characteristic is holiness. When you treat him like your best buddy, that you can call forth at your command to do what you want him to do, yeah, you forgot that his core characteristic is holiness. When you can use God to further your agenda, which, I, by the way, I think that's part of what it means to use God's name in vain, to use God to further your agenda instead of God's agenda, you forgot that the core characteristic of God is holiness. So notice the angels' song. This is the same song they sing in Isaiah 6. And they're going to get to another song. Depending on how you count in the book of Revelation, there may be as many as 20 chorales in the book of Revelation. We, you know, which we know that because we get so much of our hymnody from the book of Revelation. Uh, the, great, the great hallelujah chorus, of course, comes from the book of Revelation. So we use a lot of the language. The holy, holy, holy is here. So he, here's, the, um, here's the song of the creatures. Uh, Look at verse 9. Let's get to the other song now. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne. Again, just he who is seated on the throne. You're not even getting the personal name of God here. He who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. I mean, you know that he who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, that is God. You don't need a picture. You don't need a title. That is God. Verse 10, the 24 elders, we've already met the 24 elders, um, they fall down. They fall down before him who is seated on the throne, there it is again, and worship him who lives forever and ever. And then look what they do. They cast their crowns before the throne. Which again, you know that because you sung regional Hebrews, holy, holy, holy for so long. We cast our crowns before God. So yeah, we're given the gift of the crown. That's part of our ruling and reigning with Christ. But when we're in the presence of the Holy One, we cannot help but cast our crowns before God. Because there's only one throne, really. And there's only one person upon the throne. And it's not us. So you see the 24 elders, and I, I do think they represent the people of God. You see the 24 elders receiving their crown, then making their crown part of the gift that they offer to God. Um, you, you notice that they fall down. 
that's one of the most historic postures for worship. One of the reasons it's a, most, it's a historic posture for worship is the Romans were doing that before Caesar in Rome. So the early Christian communion said, well, we'll show you. We will do the same sort of prostrations before God. I, I have been in worship services where people have worshipped prostrate. I, I know pastors and other Christians who who use that posture for prayer. It's a very ancient posture for prayer, like upraised hands, prostrate before God. There's a lot of different postures for prayer. But just think about the symbolism of being prostrate. Um, When someone becomes a monk in the Roman Catholic Church, they are prostrated before the altar and when they take their final vows because prostration is a great sign of worship, a great symbol of worship that says ultimate supreme surrender to God. Um, So I commend different bodily postures to you for worship. Um, You know, one of, and even C.S. Lewis, who is an uptight Church of England Episcopalian, wrote, we shouldn't all have to do the same thing at the same time in our worship service. And C.S. Lewis, at the end of his life, when he was writing letters to Malcolm, he actually was referencing the Greek Orthodox Church, the oldest branch of Christendom. In the Greek Orthodox Church, they'll worship for three hours. There are no pews in Greek Orthodox churches. They'll have some chairs around the side for the older folks to sit down. But there are people standing. There will be some sitting. There'll be babies crawling around. There'll be infants doing their thing. There'll be people coming and going. Some people will be worshiping. Then they'll walk over and kiss the icon. If you've ever experienced Greek Orthodox worship, again, this is the oldest branch of Christianity. They claim they're the most authentic branch of Christianity. Uh, Even their worship services, there's no understanding that everybody has to do the same thing at the same moment in the worship service. Now, in the West, we're a little uptight. And we think everybody has to do the same thing at the same moment in the worship service. You know, I, you know if you're in a worship service and person behind you raises their hand and prays, some of you will get nervous. <laughs> you know, so you might need to stay away from our contemporary worship service. If you think everybody has to do the same thing at every moment in worship. There's a lot of different postures for worship, a lot of different postures for prayer. Um, and that's important because our whole being needs to worship. Uh, we had our prayer entreat um, Monday night here, and many of you participated in the prayer entreat. Gave three of us an opportunity to teach six different times on Monday uh, what we were teaching. And I had the opportunity to talk about davening. Uh, nobody knows what davening is, uh, but if you go to the Jewish world or you watch a videotape of Jews praying for the Western Wall, what do you see them doing? They're rocking back and forth. And I asked the group, I said, why, why do you think they're doing that? Somebody said, so they can stay awake. Um, I, I said, really a little bit deeper theology than, it may help, it probably would help. Because when they're praying to God, they want their whole being, their whole person participating. Not just their mind or maybe their voice. They want their whole being participating. That's why there's lots of postures for prayer and worship in the Bible. 
Uh, I think it's there because God loves creativity and diversity. And I think it's there to make sure none of us say this is the most sacred. This is the way you have to stand. You know, you know why Jews today don't kneel in prayer? But they don't. You know why? They used to. Because we remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel knelt before the open wind, window and prayed, right? But Jews, they do not kneel in prayer. Do you know why? Because we Christians do. Sometimes we make our decisions like that in life, don't we? You know, but in the New Testament, Old Testament, there's a lot of different postures for, for, for prayer and for worship. Um, you notice the song here that the, that the elders are singing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God. By the way, Domitian, the emperor, printed coins where he referred to himself as Lord and God. But this song says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So here is not the holiness of God that's being lifted up. It's God as creator is being lifted up. So you got two songs here. One that uh, really references the holiness of God. This really references uh, God as creator. And that's why he is worthy to be worshipped. So that's the song of the elders, people in heaven. Next week, it's even a richer text because it's Christ at the center of the worship in heaven. So go in peace. Make sure you know everybody. Stay dry. Somebody left some glasses outside that Joe brought in. So if you've been sitting here looking at your Bible through through blurry eyes, Joe might be the one that has your reading glasses. Uh, if, if you don't take them, they'll go in the bazaar in the general store. But he's got somebody's glasses.